0: I'm Eve Poole and I'm the interim chief exec of the RSE. So the Royal Society of Edinburgh is Edinburgh's... Well, it's Scotland's National Academy. Uh, We try and make sure that we cover all quarters of Scotland. But also, unlike some of the learned societies down south, we cover a whole range of things. It's not just sciences, but the humanities and the arts. um, And that, of course, includes letters. Um, So we have many fellows, like Sir Ian, who write books. um, And we also have Annie Lennox as a fellow. We have all kinds of people, from all walks of life. um, Because those who founded the RSC in the 1700s were very keen that... Scotland was able to draw on all its leading minds. And if there was anything vexing Scotland, they should have one place to go to, um, to have answers on all things. So our Curious event is a way of showcasing some of those great minds to the world. And one of our themes is about storytelling. So tonight we are going to ask Sir Ian to tell us some stories about some exhibits he's brought, um, to tell us a wee bit about his journey so that we can be curious about him. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not going to introduce him really because he's dead famous and I'm sure you've all Googled him. Um, but he is going to essentially introduce himself by way of these objects. So I don't know which one you want to start with, but I shall pass over to you um, and you can fish one out and tell us about it. Um, the beer isn't an object, by the way, that's just a beverage. No, no.
1: no, although that, I should have, that would have been a good one, wouldn't it? No, Think about it. Um,
0: well, maybe we
1: start with the comics No why comics you say right let me just show you what i've got here i've got this is issue number one of countdown which was a comic that came out in 19 february 71 so i was 10 years old and it cost 5p and not only did i buy comics but I, as you can see i kept them this one is captain scarlet it's got doctor who it's got thunderbirds it's got ufo it's a lot of jerry anderson stuff in it the other one's a bit more unusual it's called target the great new weekly for boys which I think is 72, so I would have been probably 11, 12. Um, And issue two came with free, the only food for your powder of life. Now issue one obviously came with something that if you put it in water, would eventually come into something alive. It's weird, I've no idea. Your fish, it's some kind of fish. Um, Do not add anything other than growth vitamins. Your fish have been alive for eight days. Uh, Your fish have stopped moving, here's what to do. Uh, Next week, everything you should know about your amazing fish. So Target was this kind of weird... I mean, what is it? It it says it's a comic. It's got an article about Henry Cooper, an article about the death of the Red Baron, an article about the Ferrari Dino car. It's got a thing about the Man on the Moon. It's got a cartoon about a skinhead called Bover Boy. It's got Chuck Faraday Private Eye, which is a kind of continuing story. It's a bizarre amalgam that I think never really took off and eventually was ditched after a few issues. Um, but I, I loved comics when I, you know, the first literature I read, uh, because my parents weren't great readers. They probably re- I saw them maybe read one book a year when, which is our summer holiday reading when we were at the caravan in St. Andrews. Um, and my dad would usually read a Muhammad Ali autobiography and my mom would read a romantic novel. Uh, But I was just fascinated by stories and storytelling and plot and cartoons and these extraordinary characters who existed in a fictional world that was very far from the world I was growing up in, in a coal mining village in Fife in the 60s and early 70s. So it was a form of escapism, um, but it was the first baby steps, really, towards reading long form. So that's, you know, and as you can see, I've kept, I've not kept every comic, obviously, but I've kept some of the ones that were important to me and I do have box after box after box of them in my office. So they've travelled with me from my home in Cardin, to university in Edinburgh, to London when I got married, to France when we moved to France, back to Edinburgh and these comics have always been there. Uh, so obviously they mean something to me and, uh, and, and what they mean to me now is I like can of first steps towards being a storyteller.
0: Did you pop down to the shops to get them?
1: Did you get them delivered? Did you do a paper round? How did you get your comics? There was a paper shop in Carden Den. There was one in well, Bowhill, really. It was four villages, A, B, C, D, after Dern, Bowhill, Carden Den, Dundonald. And I grew up in Bowhill, which eventually was swallowed up by Carden Den as a postal thing. Um, and I, I used to have, I think I had an order. Some of them were an order. And at one point, I think I had an order in for seven or eight comics a week. And my parents just... I think I had an uncle. Now, this uncle, uh, amongst other things, was involved in the newspaper industry. He ran the Loch Times, I think it was called. Loch Times Weekly Newspaper. And he said to my parents, it doesn't matter what Ian's reading as long as he's reading. So they were okay with me having this glut of comics, this cheap, affordable literacy. Um, many of which, these two comics I brought along don't, but many of which came from Dundee, of course. DC Thompson and I mean that was hugely important this was you know for a few pennies you could you could get you could be introduced to a whole new world of of fun and adventure and storytelling and um, and it was just you know a narrative uh, and drawing and I tried drawing I tried to draw cartoons when I was small I would get a sheet of paper fold it in half fold it in half again cut the edges to make a little eight page booklet break it up into squares, put little characters in the squares, little speech bubbles. Then I would put free gifts on the front um, to try and... Yeah, I would make a badge from a bit of cardboard and a bit of a safety pin and a bit of sellotape, and I'd stick that in the front, free gift this week, a badge. And I would show them to my mum. And I was desperately trying to to, uh, be creative uh, in this fairly unpromising landscape.
0: So how did you pay for them? Did you get
1: pocket money? I got pocket money, yeah. I never, my, my big sister used to have to go and do the tatties and stuff. She used to go and pick potatoes and uh, she had a series of jobs, but I never did. I think I was, I don't know why I was let off. I was the youngest kid and maybe they were taking pity on me. Um, I was the clever one. You know, both my sisters left school at 15 and went and got jobs and I was going to stick around and go to uni. So maybe they thought, oh, Ian's better off being at home and reading than going out, doing a paper round. And I, I couldn't be arsed getting up early anyway. Um, A paper round, no thanks. A milk round. Oh, geez. Uh, Age 17, I did get a job in a chicken hatchery, uh, part of the Eastwoods Chicken Factory. That was in uh, King Lassie in Fife. My wife, my wife, my mother worked in the big Eastwoods Chicken Factory in Glenrothes, So I think she managed to wangle me a job there. So summer, Easter, Christmas... I always had a job in the chicken hatchery, and that was the same when I went to uni. Um, When I wasn't at uni out of term time, I'd be working in a hatchery. So what
0: else did you spend your pocket money on?
1: What else did I spend my pocket money on? Toys, toy cars, toy soldiers, I've still got some of the cars, the vehicles, the Corgi, the Dinky cars. I've not got many, I wish I had more, I've got the Monkey Mobile, I kept that. Uh, I think I've still got a Captain Scarlet Spectrum patrol car. And I've got Chitty Chitty Bang Bang. Cool. None of them are in very good nick. They're all missing quite a lot because I would crash the cars into each other and stuff and have them flying off onto pavements and things. Um, but I had lots and lots and lots of cars, lots of soldiers and cowboys and Indians and stuff like that. Anything that would help me with my role-playing games, you know. Um, I mean, my, par- my sisters were a fair bit older than me. Um, so my the younger of my two sisters was married... 1972, so I was 11, 12. So from the age of 11 or 12, I I was the only kid in the house. And I was given kind of free reign. You know, it became my domain. And my bedroom became my domain, really. You know, I'd posters up on the walls and um, I would write write poems and comics and song lyrics and all kinds of stuff. We're going to move on to that in a second. Um, And that, that became my world.
0: And what posters did you have up?
1: Um, funnily enough, I just, I, for a, an article or for an interview I've done with a newspaper and I forget which one, it might be Mail of the Express, uh, which was about the house you grew up in. I had to try and find some old photographs and I found one of me aged 10 or 11 sitting on the bed in my, it was a box room, basically my bedroom before my sister moved out mm-hmm. I got her bedroom. Um, and it was festooned with posters. There was a music magazine that everybody here is too young to remember called Sounds. And Sounds was a weekly, but it had a free poster, color poster every week. So for the princely sum of six or eight P, you got a color poster. And I would stick, gaily stick these up on the wall. I thought Alice Cooper was a really rough looking woman. <laughs> you know, Before I'd ever heard an Alice Cooper record, I had a poster of Alice Cooper. I had posters of Black Sabbath, Proko Haram, Wish Bonash. I'd never heard them, but there was a color poster, stick it up on the walls. And I had George Best and George, yeah, John Gregg, the Rangers captain and various other things. Um, Ceiling, covered and stuff. Um, It was, you know, it's all about imprinting your personality on a room. And I I get very sad now when I go into people's houses and people's rooms. Modern houses are not designed to have the kind of storage space that old houses used to have. And people have got out of the way of keeping books and albums, CDs, cassettes, whatever. as a way of showing you who they are so you can walk into someone's home or room now and not know who they are and that seems completely bizarre to me because the first thing I used to do when I would go and visit somebody was go and check out the bookshelves, check out the records, check out the cassettes and that would give you a sense of who this person was and did you have anything in common with them and what could you borrow?
0: So, one thing I do know about you and your money is you used to get on the bus and go to Kakadi to buy records. So, one of your other objects is a record. Do you want to tell us about that? Well, this is a.
1: I'm glad I found this today. Um, during lockdown, one of the things I did was I, uh, for the first time in my life, I alphabetized. I know my LP collection and my CD collection. And uh, so I can find stuff now. I could never find stuff. So, I went into Z and found this Frank Zappa album. Um, Zappa and the Mother's Roxy and Elsewhere. It's a double live album. Uh, Bought around about 1974, 75, I would have been 14 or 15. Bought at Bruce's Record Shop in Kerkoddy. It was in the sale rack, so I could afford it, although it's a double album. Uh, I'd heard Zappa at a mate's house. His big brother had a great record collection. That was the first place I heard Zappa, Led Zeppelin, Jethro Tull. Um, and music did become very important to me very early on. But the reason that I was excited to find this was, when I got an LP, uh, LPs used to come with these plain white inner sleeves, right? And what I would do is I would take them out and I would design other album sleeves on the inner. So this is an album sleeve for my band, the Amoebas. The Amoebas only existed on paper and in my head. And this is an album called Die. Die which I would have designed roundabout. And this would have been, this wouldn't have been 74, 75. This must have been 76, 77, because it's a punk album. Now, the Amoebas when they started, when I was 12 or 13, were a a progressive rock band. (laughs) But then when I started getting into punk, I made them a punk band. So the Amoebas are a punk band. This is the back cover of the most shattering punk album ever, says the wee guy, uh, wearing an Amoebas T-shirt and big boots. And not only have I got the list of the band, Ian Caput on vocals, thank you very much, um, Blue Lightning on guitar, Zed Killer Macintosh on bass, etc. Tracks, track listen. So the tracks they do the 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 time. So Walk on the Wild Side, four minutes five. Then an original song, Hell Alley, which is nine minutes sixteen, which is pretty impressive for a punk band. Uh, Connection. That's a cover of a Rolling Stone song, four minutes. All the young dudes, Gloria, Sick as a Dog. That's an original. Parlour punk rock is an original. Town of my youth is an original. I would it's somewhere I would have lit, written the lyrics for that. I've not got the lyrics anymore, but I would have had the lyrics written down. I've got the producer's name, Ed Hollis, made up, I can't remember, (laughs) could be a real person. Um, You know, I I mentioned some, thanks to these people, I think all made up. And what I did was I just created this band and then I would have a top 10 every week and they would always be number one, but I had nine (laughs) other bands and I had the people who belonged in those bands and I would plan their world tours and I would write the lyrics and I would design their album sleeves. And I was creating a world, an alternate universe where things would work out the way I wanted them to work out. So it was, it was brilliant. And so music to me was much more than just listening to the radio or saving up enough money to go to Kirkcaldy and buy a record. It was then a way of expressing yourself and something that might take you out of your reality and take you to somewhere much more interesting and exciting. So I was really, really chuffed to find that I've still got an Amoebus album sleeve.
0: <laughs> You'll get signed. <laughs> who knows? And Music is still very much a part of your life. So tell us a bit more about you and music, because it wasn't just about buying albums. Um, well, I mean,
1: it, it was about it was you know buying a lot of records and listening to records, and and then connecting with people at school who had the same taste as you. So you'd walk into school with the album under your under your arm. And somebody would say, Oh, I love that band. You'd go, Oh, right. And you'd get chatting, and then you'd go to their bedroom and you would swap LPs. They'd get one of your LPs for a week, you'd get one of theirs, that would widen your kinny sphere. Um, and eventually started going to gigs. First gig was in Edinburgh. I think I was 15. Couldn't get back to Cardin then because the trains all the last train was 10:15 or something. So I'd arranged to sleep on a mate. A mate went with me. He lived in Cowden Beath. We could get back to Cowden Beath. So I slept on his floor that night and the band, was, the band we were going to go and see was Argent, Argent, uh, Russ Ballard, who's coming to Edinburgh again quite soon. He was a singer, and, and Rod Argent was on keyboards. Um, but they were playing in Leith, and we had no idea how to get to Leith from Waverley Station. So we found another gig at Usher Hall, which was a band called Barclay James Harvest. Now I'd never heard Barclay James Harvest, and I'd never bought one of their albums. But Julie we went along, I bought the poster, I bought the badge, I bought the programme, listened to the band, right, they were okay. I went back to my mates. And then the second gig I went to a year later was Bartlett James Harvest again. And I'd still never bought any of their albums in the meantime, but you go, oh, you know, they were all right. I'll go and see them again. Um, and we used to organise buses from Cowden Beath, from Beath High School. We'd organise buses to come through to Edinburgh, eventually to gigs. So we didn't have to worry about getting the last train and missing the encore. It was always that terrifying moment when you had to leave the gig before the encore to get to the station if you weren't going to miss the last train. Um, and, and it was just, you know, it, it just, it was an escape. It was an escape. And then eventually, of course, Fife got its own bands. We'd had their own bands. We had our own bands, but Nazareth. Nazareth were the big um, Fife band at one time. They were a rock, heavy rock band from Dunfermline. When punk came along, suddenly, everybody thought they could be in a band. And Stuart Adamson, the guitarist in the skids in Big Country, was two years above me at Beath High School. So we looked up to him, he was like a god. You know, I was 15, 16, punk was just starting. And we used to go along and see the skids, every gig the skids did, Dumfermline, Um, They used to play the Pogo Gogo club in Kirkcaldy, which was the station hotel. Don't
0: think they ever made it to St Andrews. Uh, <laughs> you, they, you might be
1: surprised. They might have played a student gig in St Andrews. They would, I'll ask Ricky Jobson that next time I see him. There you go. Um, but we used to follow them all over the place. And that was, that was empowering, actually. Punk, I often say this, was a huge moment for me because what Punk said was, you don't have to go on to a posh school. You don't have to afford a synthesizer. You don't have to know the right people. Um, your parents don't have to have deep pockets. If you want to be in a band, just get on and do it. Get a cheap, shitty guitar, get some mates together and just do it. You can't play a note, you can't read music, Never mind that, just get on and give it a go. And by the time I got to Edinburgh University in October 78, suddenly I met all these people who said, let's just give it a go. Let's just start a newspaper, let's start a magazine, let's, let's do a play, let's try and make a film. Let's have poetry readings. Let's let's have a band, you know. And so eventually, I joined a band around about '78, fifth second best punk band, um, the Dancing Pigs. I used to rehearse at the YMCA in Cowdenbeath, and um, I think we had five fans. Uh, uh, we played about six gigs, went to recording studio a couple of times, but it was just give it a go. You know, give it a go. And that was really, really important because otherwise, how was I going to get into being a writer? I didn't know any writers. I didn't know any publishers. How do you get started? I've no idea. But I'm not going to give up. I'm just going to give it a go.
0: So words have always been something that have fascinated you. Um, And I know you have an other object with you, which is today's paper.
1: I've got today's Times. Yes. The reason for this is the cryptic crossword which I do every day, religiously. It's the only reason I buy the Times. is to do the crossword. Um, and it has to be on a physical bit of paper, because I need to be able to scribble things down, anagrams and things, and work stuff out. When I was a kid, we got the, the paper my parents got was the Dundee Courier. Back in the days when it still had a full front page of classified ads. It was an old, really old fashioned looking paper, but it had a little concise crossword in the back. And for some reason, I just started doing the crossword. I had a tiny wee concise dictionary and I would sort of go through that. If it was a word I didn't understand, I would go through the dictionary to try and work out what the word was and what it meant. And I just became fascinated by words and my dad would sometimes help me out with it. And I got a Chambers Dictionary about 19... I could have brought that along actually tonight. I got a big Chambers Dictionary about 76, 77. And I've still got it. When I go to the back of it, written in the white paper at the back, I just list the words that I have found in dictionary and just liked, liked the look of them, liked the sound of them and I would try and use them in essays. I remember writing an essay at school. An essay was a short story. I used to love writing these because an, an English essay was a short story. And I wrote an essay one day called uh, Paradox, which was about a guy who's the president of the United States, but towards the end, we realise he's actually in an asylum. And he just thinks he's the president of the United States. Uh, <laughs> no comment. And um, my teacher said to me, he said, oh, I like that, but why is it called Paradox? I said, it's just a great word. And it's a, it's a song by Hawkwind. And he went, he went, go and look it up in the dictionary. And I went and looked up and went, actually, it's got no connection to this story whatsoever. But, you know, but it's a great word. I just love the look of it and the sound of it. Um, so yeah, so so I really, around about in the early 20s, I got into cryptic crosswords. I used to get Aricaria, which was the big one. It was in the Guardian. Um, and I just was absolutely hooked. And I would get books of cryptic crosswords and I would keep them busy forever. And one of the highlights of my life was at the Edinburgh Book Festival years ago along at Charlotte Square, they asked me if I wanted to chair Aricaria. A real person. A real person, a quiet, shy, elderly gentleman came along. And it was great. And he just talked us through how he creates an Aricaria crossword. And I'm just fascinated by them. So every morning, to get the motor started, the brain, I sit down with my coffee and I do the Times cryptic.
0: So what are some of your favourite words?
1: Favourite words? Um, Lacrosse. That's a good one. That's from Gregory's Girl. Anybody remember that? <laughs> yeah. Shite, that's yeah. lacrosse. <laughs> you know, they're talking about hockey. Shite, that's lacrosse. It's not <laughs> hockey. Um, that's a great word. Uh, nuance. I like nuance. Um, I like paradigm. Uh, I like caesura because I couldn't, I couldn't pronounce it when I arrived at Edinburgh Uni. First time the teacher said it, I went, what? I'd be calling it, I think, kaisura? I can't remember. Anyway, I think it's a caesura. Um... What else? I don't know. There's just loads of them. And every, every you know, I keep learning new words and it's, it's wonderful. I mean, the, not so much the times. The times I'm pretty good at now but I sometimes do the spectator and that's a really hard crossword. And there's words in there that you've really got to dig deep into the Encyclopedia Britannica and the forces of the, the internet to try and work out what the hell that word is. You know, a Patagonian snake that's only been seen once in 300 years <laughs> and has no vowels in it. And you go... Sorry, pal. You know, Andrew and Card and We used to go to St Andrews for our holidays. This is just completely unknown territory to me. Uh, and yeah, I'm at an age now. I'm 62, and I sometimes do forget words now. Um, so, which is why I still keep writing them down.
0: So you've always had a, a discipline of writing. You've got another object in there, which is about that.
1: We're racing through them.
0: Huh? Uh,
1: yes. Um, well, I could have chosen any. I could have chosen any of many years for this. Okay. So, allied to all of this that we've been talking about, about the age of 10 or 11, my big sister Linda, who was still living at home with us, uh, got me a wee pocket diary as a Christmas present. And I thought, oh, a diary, blank pages, I must fill them up. So, and it was just at like that much for each day, it was like an inch for each day. So I would write in tiny writing what I'd done that day. And the following year, she got me a slightly bigger diary. Oh, more white space, I need to fill that up. Writing it. And these got big, I've not brought a big one. She got, they ended up with these huge desk diary things she ended up giving me, and I'd st- I've got to fill it up. Can't have any blank space, I'd just make stuff up. I would write stories, I would do lists of LPs and records I would buy if I had enough money, um, films I wanted to go and see, gigs I wanted to go to. I just made stuff up. So this one, which I picked plucked at random, this, I've kept them all. So from 1970, 70, 71, through to 19, let me get this right, 1990, I kept a page-a-day diary. Um, and then we moved to France, my wife and I moved to France in 1919. It, it became a, a, a journal, a house journal, and eventually just petered out. But for, you know, a, lo- a big chunk of my life, I did keep a, a, a diary. And and it's a hook, because I looked in it, and there's a little... Patch that you can iron onto your jacket um, or orchestral Manoeuvres in the Dark. Yeah. It must have come with an album or a single or something. A free patch and I've kept a patch, but probably chucked away the single. Um, 1980, so I was started off 19 and lovely. It starts off Diary of a Lunatic. Uh, it says in big writing on the front uh, by Ian James Rankin, and then I also say Dancing Pigs rule. Aha, my band the Dancing Pigs. Uh, We were originally called Death Poppies by the look of it. Then we were called Agent Orange, I've scored through that. And then we were Dancing Pigs. So there you go. So that was my punk band. But there's all kinds of rubbish in here. Got up at 11 11 a.m. with a stinking head. Uh, Hi fans, well here we are again at the end of another Nervous Breakdown. Uh, A Distinctly Shitty Holiday. Uh, What's that? I can't even read that. Uh, postcard from Lucky Jock Scott down in London. That's my mate Jock, who I still see. He still lives in London. He was at school with me. Last shift, I think I was working in the chicken factory then. Um, up at the crack of eight. There you go. Uh, there's a lot of money in it. There's a lot of, you know, me me being worried about not having enough money or saving money or needing money for this or how much, you know, I would put in how much the bus to Kirkoddy was or how much a gig was to get in, or how much a record cost. Oh, uh, you know, Robert Fripp at the nightclub. That was a venue above the playhouse. It was a punk venue above the playhouse in Edinburgh. Robert Fripp and his band. Oh, uh, the, the Dancing Pigs played at the commercial hotel in Cowdenbeath. That was you a big it. one. So that you was May it, the 30th. I think we were supporting a heavy metal band. Sandy came with a great Dancing Pigs badge he's made. I've still got that. Sandy, uh, Sandy's an old school friend of mine. I still see him. I mean, a lot of these people who were at school and uni with me, I'm still very much in touch with. You know, I made friends then. I've not made many friends since, to be honest with you. But a lot of the friends that I met at school um, and at uni are still friends. 20th of April, my birthday, so I would have been 20. Magazine gig, went to see a went to see magazine play. Um, brilliant. They were really good. I drank eight pints and four laggers. That, that's eight, 12 pints of, 12 pints of alcohol. Fuck. Uh, I wouldn't do Oh, so that's why the next day I woke up at 1 a.m., felt grim. Okay. Uh, woke up, sorry, woke up at 1 p.m., felt grim. Went back to sleep, woke about 5.30 p.m., decided it was maybe time to get up. Yeah, nice one. <laughs> you know what? It's great for your writing muscle. I, it, whenever, you know, young writers, would-be writers of any age say to me, you know, what can I do? What should I do? I've not got much advice for them. I've never been to creative writing classes and stuff. But I would say try and write every day. Try and write every day. And, and by writing every day and trying to fill up those blank pages, I started making stuff up. And so I started to invent things and found that invent things was just as much fun as writing about the real world. Mm-hmm. So it was very, it was, it was a great thing to do. And I use Twitter like that now. People say, why are you on Twitter so much? It's like a diary to me. I can scroll back and see what I was doing on any particular day. It's just a diary that you have to share with a lot of weird strangers.
0: <laughs> so you liked uni. Um, you liked it so much you thought about doing a PhD. I think you started it even. Tell us about that. You've got a thing in your bag. I,
1: I mean, like I mean you too. know, I, well, I mean, let's backtrack a wee bit if we've got time. Yeah. I, I mean, I, you know, hi, at high school. I was at Ochterdern Junior High. At the end of second year, they said you're brainy enough to go up to the senior high. So you went to senior high, where you were going to stay until you were eighteen, whereas Ochterdern would kick you out at sixteen you had to wear a blazer, you had to wake up early in the morning and get a bus, to out and beef, all that kind of stuff. I had a mate who didn't do it. He said, I'm not going, to, I'm not doing that. So he cleverer than me in every subject except English, he stuck around at Ochterderm. Um, Imagine asking you to make that decision without your parents when you're 13, 14 years old. It's extraordinary. Uh, beef, clever enough to get the grades, off to Edinburgh Uni, started doing English. I'm floundering. At first, my mum was quite ill. She died at the end of first year. So all the way through first year, she was getting iller and iller. And the subject wasn't quite what I thought it was going to be. It was like Chaucer and stuff. Um, I was interested in 1984 and Catch-22. And I was in the punk band and that, and I'm thinking, this isn't working out. Anyway, scraped into an MA. And then things did take off. I did get better and did enjoy it more and felt a bit more confident got a good enough M.A. It wouldn't happen now. I got an upper second, and that was enough for me to apply to do a PhD. Now, thanks to my diaries, uh, because I thought I got in to do a PhD quite easily. No, no, no. I was turned down, rejected. And I was on holiday with my girlfriend in Ireland, and I got a phone call to her mum to say, we've changed our mind. You can come to Edinburgh and do a PhD. So, you know, that was like at a month's notice. And... Originally I was going to do a PhD on Thomas Pynchon. That was my favourite novelist at the time, American novelist. And I was told that I wouldn't get money from some Scottish Arts Council or not the Scottish Education Department to do a PhD on an American writer at a Scottish Uni. And the person who told me this was a lecturer called Cairns Craig, who became a professor eventually, now, excuse me, now retired. I said, Well, who would I get money to do a PhD on? Because I was just desperate. Uh, and he said, well, there's not much on Muriel Spark. And I went, what, The Miss Jean Brodie Woman? And he went, yeah. He said, she's written 23 other novels. Has she? He said, go and read some of them and see what you think. So I went away to Finn's bookshop, got a load of Muriel Spark novels. I did have Miss Jean Brodie. I did have it because I had seen the film and the film had nudity in it. <laughs> and so I thought, oh, I better go and read the book. The book might have nudity in it too. So about age 14 or something, I think I, I 14 I went and bought the, old, the film tie-in version. Muriel Spark, Miss Jean Brodie. Um, uh, and there it is. There's Maggie Smith on the cover. The 50p. 50p. Um, and so I had that. So I went and got that and I read some other ones and I thought, yeah, she's really good. I like her a lot. So I did my proposal, got accepted. Um, and did, and, but then as soon as I got accepted, I thought, okay, I've got three years of funding. This would be, this would be a good... What would Muriel want? <laughs> would she want me to do an unreadable PhD that will sit on the sixth floor of Edinburgh University Library? unloved, unlooked after, unread, or would she want me to use these three years of funding to try and become a writer myself? Yeah. Now, I didn't have access to her, so I just imagined what her response might be, which is, yeah, Ian, go for it. So I spent my three years basically sitting in the National Library of Scotland, writing novels, doing enough that they couldn't kick me out. The unfinished PhD is now in the National Library of Scotland, along with my archive, um, they couldn't kick me out because they kept doing enough, writing enough chapters. But I wrote three, three or four novels in three years. Um, so Muriel Spark is the reason I'm sitting here today, really, because if it hadn't been for that PhD... But, I mean, I did take it pretty seriously. I, I was showing you this earlier. I'll just show you this. There's all kinds of wee scraps of paper in this book and things written in the margins, um, which are kind of embarrassing now, of course, uh, always will be. But obviously, when I started doing this from a PhD... There was a bit in Latin in the book that I didn't understand on page 71. So I wrote to my old uh, Latin teacher at Beath High School, Mr. Darach, who was living in Perth. And Mr. Darach wrote back, having translated it from the Latin into English for me. Um, I would suspect an origin like Carmina Burana, he says. Uh, I had no idea what that was either. But uh, he, so I kept in touch with my teachers. You know, I mean, the PhD was 83, 86. I'd left school 78. I was still going back to Beith. I was still talking to the teachers, still seeing the teachers occasionally and felt able to write to the Latin teacher uh, and get him to help me out with my PhD. Um, yeah, I just loved, I just, I, I loved that. I mean, I, it, some of them, I think, no, Ron is not alive anymore. My English teacher, Mr., uh, um, Mr. Gillespie, I'm pretty sure is still alive. My German teacher, Mrs. Porches, is still alive. Um, and I've still never found out if she's related to the Porches riots, Porches. She must be. Can't be that many purchases in the world. I should ask her that one day.
0: So what was it about um, Muriel Spark that you were looking at? What was the focus of the PhD? I think that was, you've hit on the nail on the head
1: there, there was no focus to the PhD. Oh, okay. I kept changing my mind about what the thesis was. I got more, I got, as I got more and more interested in literary theory, I became much more um, uh, kind of, you know, post-modern, post looking at her as a post-modernist writer, an early postmodernist writer who plays games, with the form of the novel and with the reader, very playful, very Scottish, very based in the kind of dark Gothic strain of Jekyll and Hyde uh, and um, Justified Sinner, interested in the ballads, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, but also very European writer. She was influenced by the Nouveau Roman. Um, so it was really looking at her as an experimental writer. Which, if you bought those old paperbacks, on the back it would usually say "Scintillating." It says it here. For comic observation and spicy dialogue, it's impossible to outclass Muriel Spark. No, she's much darker than that. This book is a very dark book. You know, Miss Jean Brodie is not the hero. She's the villain of the piece. She's descended from William Brodie, you know, Uh, who was gentleman by day and and thief and villain by night. And she doesn't tell us that, but she tells us she's descended from this Edinburgh gentleman, William Brodie. And, and so they're kind of, you know, they're morally complex books. They're tiny. They're like little Tardises. They're much, much bigger on the inside than the outside. And our shorter books are the better books. The long books aren't as successful, I don't think. So The Driver's Seat, which is 100 pages, is, is amazing and dark, very dark. Um, this was published in a single issue of The New Yorker, Miss Jean Brodie, because that's how long it is or how short it is that they could contain it in a single issue of the the magazine, which is an extraordinary thing to do, isn't it? One whole issue of The New Yorker was dedicated to publishing a book. Um, And so, yeah, and I got, you know, early on in my thesis, I was lucky in a way the writer-in-residence at Edinburgh for a couple of years was Alan Massey. And Alan Massey had written a very short, slim book about Muriel Spark, so I used to pick his brains a lot. And also he was a big influence on me as a writer as well. He was one of the first people to get me published. He was a judge on the Scotsman short story competition when I won second prize. Ian Crichton Smith won first prize. I was 23. I won a Sinclair Spectrum ZX computer.
0: <laughs>
1: um, and and, he, and then Alan, who was editing the Edinburgh, Edinburgh, Edinburgh Review at that time, took another story for the Edinburgh Review. So my first magazine publication was courtesy of Alan Massey, first newspaper. Publication was Court's of Alan Massey being a judge on the Scotsman Short Story Prize. Um, anyway, he, he gave me a slip of paper with Muriel Sparks' address in Rome on it. And I thought, ooh, I could write to her. I bottled it, bottled it. I never did write to her. So the only time I ever met her, and some of you might have been there, was the final event she did at the Edinburgh Book Festival the year before she died. She came back to Edinburgh, was interviewed on stage by Alan Taylor, and she read a bit of Jean Brodie uh, and there was a party for her afterwards and I, I was invited along to the party and I went up with basically two shopping bags of first editions <laughs> um, that I'd collected down the years uh, but she was knackered I mean she, she wasn't that well and she was tired and so I got to sit down next to her and I, I just plucked out my first edition of Jean Brodie which my girlfriend bought for me at a book fair in Edinburgh back when I was a student Paid I think she paid £8 for it a ridiculous amount of money at the time for a second hand book anyway she signed that to me and I was a photographer there and he got a photograph of the two of us and I'm looking like a complete fanboy. If I'd been sitting in front of Mick Jagger, I could not have looked more like a fanboy. This huge cheesy grin on my face as she's sitting there signing this book for me. Um, And it was lovely and then of course after she died I was able to make a documentary about her for Sky Arts and was able to trace her life and learn a lot more about her because when I was writing the PhD there wasn't much known about her life and now we know a lot more about how her life did feed into the books and how a lot of these very fantastical books are actually based on real incidents or moments in her life. Um, so that's been fascinating for me, that, Kenny, that the journey continues with Muriel Spark. And is one of those books that I will happily read and reread. I've probably read it every year since I was a student. And if, if you sat me down with it tonight, I would read it again. And I would find something in it that I'd not found before.
0: So she'd be proud of you. So you sat in the library cracking on writing books. Talk to us about that.
1: Well, yeah, I mean, I was sitting in the the, the National Library, which was only open to postgraduate students and um, professionals. Undergrads couldn't get in. And so I'd be sitting there writing longhand, writing. The first novel I wrote was a comedy called Summer Writes, R-I-T-E-S, which I sent to Gallangs because having won second prize in the Scotsman competition, first prize Ian Crichton-Smith published by Gallangs I said, Mr. Crichton-Smith, will you introduce me to your publisher? So he sent a letter of introduction. They said, send us a book. So the summer rights was read by Livia Gallangs the daughter of the Victor Gallangs who set the company up. He was dead by then. She was in charge. And she said, well, this, is, this is good. Um, the last third needs quite a bit of work. I went, what does she know? I've written a great Scottish novel, so I refused to change a word of it, and that was the end of that. That went in the bottom drawer, never to be seen again. Now in the bells of the National Library, Uh, only one copy. I couldn't afford to photocopy it. Typed up on a on a portable typewriter that I got from my sister's mail order catalog. Um, So that, and also, oh, I didn't know about putting a space after a comma or a full stop, and I didn't know about not doing single lines. So it's just this compressed chunk of solid text. Almost unreadable. How Olivia Galans read it? God bless her. I have no idea. Um, there was that. So that was year one. Then I wrote the flood, which was not a crime novel, and that was about that was a bildungsroman, a young guy growing up in a completely fictitious fife mining village of Carsden. <laughs> uh, I thought nobody will know. Um, a character in it called Sandy. My mates called Sandy from high school. Um, Main character called Mary Miller, woman over the back fence for us called Mary Miller. Yeah. Um, (laughs) Didn't go too well. Wasn't received too well in Cardon then. Published by a very small press in Edinburgh, Polygon, which was owned and run by students at the time. They'd had some success with James Kelman. So they had a little bit of money and they decided to try and get some new voices. And I was one of them. Um, And then because I'd been published, an agent came sniffing. And by then I'd written this book called Knots and Crosses with this guy called Rebus. Which was a very playful Edinburgh puzzle novel um, that was stylized and very much influenced by Jacqueline Hyde, um, but featured a cop. I didn't read crime fiction at the time. I didn't read crime fiction. But um, they took it to London, and the first six publishers they took it to turned it down, and the seventh, Bodley Head, said yes. And this brings us back because Bodley Head published Muriel Spark and Alan Massey. So suddenly there I was um, in, in the same list as the guy who'd been the writer in residence who was very important to me uh, as a mentor and the, the woman who'd been responsible for me getting three years of funding so that I could actually become a writer.
0: So one of the interesting things about that was you didn't set out to write it as a sort of genre book. You set out to write it about Edinburgh. So one of your other objects, I think, is also... Oh, well
1: Edinburgh. remembered. I'd forgotten about that. I thought we were done. Yes. Yes. An 80Z of Edinburgh, an Edinburgh street atlas. I could not live without street atlases. Even now when I go to London, everybody's got their phones out, I take an 80Z. I take a physical chunk of A-Z with me. And if I know I'm only going to be in, say, central London, west London, here, there, I'll just tear those pages out and take those pages with me and then put them back in. Has this got any loose pages in it? Edinburgh one doesn't, because Edinburgh one's nice and skinny and you can put it in your pocket. This one was bought when my wife and I moved back to Edinburgh in 1996. So Edinburgh's probably changed a wee bit since since this. But yeah, I mean, I would just look at the map. I would look at where does Rebus go? Where, where have I not set a murder yet? Where's the rough parts of town? Where could you hide a body? Um, I've circled Arthur's Seat, God knows why. I've circled Waverley in the castle, God knows why. You'd think you should know the in. I've circled Holyrood, God knows. Maybe I was giving it to somebody, a friend who was visiting Edinburgh and yeah. I was going to send them off. Now, the one thing I never did when I was writing the Rebus novels, Rebus, the word, is a picture puzzle. This takes us full circle because the Rebus is, the first Rebuses I ever came across were in the Sunday Post, in the comic section on a Sunday. You'd get the Brunes, Urwilly and Max's fun page. And Merrimack's fun page of puzzles and jokes had a Rebus, which was a picture puzzle. So I called my guy Rebus because he's getting sent picture puzzles. This is a very postmodernist novel. But what I didn't do was look up in here and find that there's a Rankin Drive in Edinburgh. So there's a Rankin Drive. So when I moved back to Edinburgh in 1996, about the time I bought this, I walked into a pub in Edinburgh and there was a guy in there, introduced himself as Joe Rebus. I thought, no, that means picture puzzle. It's not a real name. And he went, yeah, it is. He said, it's a Polish surname. Uh, he said, I live in Rankin Drive. How is that even possible? That, I mean, you couldn't make that up. Nobody would believe it. But I still see Joe some Friday nights to go to Swanee's Ratcliffe Terrace for a pint and there's Joe Rebus. Rebus, he pronounces it. And he's in the phone book. So I, the phone book was handed over to him in, the, in Swanee's bar and looked down Rebus, J for Joe, rank and drive. That's just the most bizarre coincidence. Most bizarre coincidence. And um, And so ever since then, when I've written the Rebus novels, at the back of my mind, I know that Rebus has Polish roots so that and in fact the book I was writing at the time I think had, uh, had reason to mention that I think it was about immigration policy and asylum seekers and stuff and so I did I was able to mention the name Rebus has Polish roots and Rebus himself has Polish roots because I didn't know until I met a real guy called Rebus
0: so you've got another Rebus coming out in October yeah and how are you feeling about Rebus has he still got some way to go
1: well, how much can I tell him? He's not got much further to go. I mean, I've said that before and it's turned out not to be true, but I don't think he's got much. This, at the end of this book, there's not much more. There's not much further he can go. Uh, I don't know what I'm going to do next, though. I don't know. I've got a year off next year, so I've got plenty of time to think about it. I've slowed down to the extent I'm doing a book every two years and next year is my year off. Now, in previous years when I've said I'm going to have a year off, another project has jumped in and taken my time and attention. My wife has said this time if I don't take a year off she's going to divorce me. So I am going to take a year off next year and not do anything. Uh, no touring, no writing, no nothing. Um, so I've got plenty of time to think about if there is any unfinished business um, and if there is, how to tackle it? I think Rebus will exist in some form or another there's always talk of him coming back on tv there's some renewed interest in tv um, i've just written a rebus play the second play i've written with him and a, a, a theater is very interested in doing it um you know radio pops up from time to time there's talk of doing a graphic novel a jigsaw you name it so i think rebus might young rebus you know will get endeavor if you can get endeavor more so you can get young john rebus um, <laughs> 70s Edinburgh I'm going to see Nazareth yay um, or even Bartle James Harvest um, I don't know he wouldn't go to see Bartle James Harvest uh, too proggy for him I think um, so yeah I don't know the thing is now we know now don't we that fictional characters never die unlike their uh, creators um, I'm kind of amazed that nobody's taken on Miss Jean Brodie yeah. and then I can I don't know a sequel a prequel whatever it would be um, possible because the estate won't let them you but do certainly with. Yeah, on my year off, my wife would kill me, Um, literally. Divorce me, then kill me. Um, But I think probably the state would say no, but it happens a lot with, with, you know, Sherlock Holmes is still being written about, Morse written about after the death of of his creator. Um, It happens, it happens, unless you write it into your will that you don't want it to happen, it will happen. So hopefully there's life in Rebus even after I'm long gone.
0: And how did you feel about that conversion onto telly?
1: Oh, I've never watched the telly. I don't watch the telly. Um, I didn't, never wanted, I don't, I, I've said this before. I, I never wanted an actor's interpretation to get in the way of my character. Now, I say that, but I was very interested when, during lockdown, the National Theatre of Scotland asked me if I would do a little five- or ten-minute monologue to be put online. Um, and people had been saying to me, how would Rebus cope with lockdown? How would Rebus cope with COVID? So I wrote a monologue, Rebus, in a time of COVID, called it Lockdown Blues. And um, they said, oh, great, we've got Brian Cox, the actor, um, not the astrophysicist, to to do it. Now, Brian Cox was in lockdown, isolating in New York State in a cabin before he went on to do a series, whatever it's called. I've only got council tally, so I don't see this American series. Ascension, Succession, Succession. Anyway, I've never seen it. Um, Anyway, and and we got him to do it. So the director was in Glasgow, Zoom. I was in Edinburgh, Zoom. Brian Cox was in New York State, Zoom. And that's how we did it. And in about four takes, and we went, yeah, that's the one. Well done, Brian. But God bless him, he dressed the set, his kitchen, to look like an Edinburgh tenement as far as possible. So he'd put a map of Edinburgh on the wall behind him, bottles of whiskey dotted about the place, uh, dog food, because Rebus is a dog, which is mentioned in the story, um, even though Brian, God bless him, does not have a dog. So he brought some, he brought some dog food and this and that and the other um, to make it look as much like Edinburgh as possible. And uh, it was great. And I really enjoyed working with him. He was the kind of first actor I think I had in mind to do it. Mm-hmm. Back in the early days when the BBC were talking about doing, right from the get-go when I was, you know, first Rebus novel was going to be televised. But originally, uh, originally it was going to be um, Dirty Den from EastEnders. He, he was going to buy the rights to it. And he was going to play Rebus and transfer the story of Knots and Crosses to London, which would have been the end of that character. I probably wouldn't have written about him again. Uh, But that fell through. The BBC got hold of it. They were going to get Robbie Coltrane, but Robbie Coltrane went and did Cracker. Brian Cox was mentioned, but he was very busy in Hollywood. It fell between the cracks for a long time until John Hanna picked it up and dusted it off and got it made. It wouldn't have got made without John Hanna's name attached to it. And he went off to Hollywood as well and eventually Ken Stott was persuaded to take it on. But I never watched it because I didn't want actors, cadences, rhythms, mannerisms, tics to get in the way of my character.
0: But did they talk to you about Rebus before they played him? No.
1: Don't remember them ever. No, actually, no, maybe John Hanna. I think we went in for a couple of pints. I don't think it happened so much with Ken Stott. Um, No, no. But well, I think I went for dinner with Ken still, he had no idea who I was. I think he, I, he had barely, a, I think at some point, somebody said, no, this is Ian, he said, what do you do? I said, no, this is Ian, he wrote the books. All right, but, but, what, but what do you do for a job? And I went, no, no, Ian's actually quite successful. I said, so I think, you know, this comes a revelation to Ken that there were writers out there who could make a living from writing. Um, but it was, it was, yeah, so I think we had one dinner, but no, we didn't really discuss the character. Uh, he's been played on radio quite a lot. Um, by yeah, a succession of really good actors. Um, Ron Donahue latterly has done a few audio books. We got um, oh, we've had, we've had some great actors do it on audio. Um, not Brian Cox though. Brian Cox just did the Michael Vanni book that I that I co-authored. Um, much more interested in it as a radio thing or an audio thing than TV. I'm, I'm not. not you know of- what? I'm not. am not a. I'm not a collegiate person. I like to play God. When I'm writing a book, I am God. And when you're on TV and film and stuff, you're a very small cog in a very big machine, and I don't like that.
0: You lose control, don't you? I don't like losing control,
1: yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. My publisher doesn't see anything until I'm happy with the book. You know, when I'm happy with it, I give it to my wife. If she's not happy with it, it gets rewritten. Then it goes to the publisher. Um, And then we can have a conversation.
0: (laughs) And again, one of the other things is you were, you were trying to showcase Edinburgh and talk about Edinburgh, um, which I imagine is slightly harder to do um, in other media. It was kind of
1: weird because Edinburgh at that time, we're talking about the mid to late 80s, there wasn't much being written about Edinburgh pre and I mean, contemporary Edinburgh. There were historical novels, um, but there was, didn't seem to be much around about contemporary Edinburgh. And, you know, I just thought, why not? Um, there, was, there were books getting written about Glasgow. We had Alistair Gray and James Kelman and Agnes Owens and lots of other writers, McOvaney. But I looked around Edinburgh and didn't see much. And so I thought, well, maybe I'll do that then. And I went back to Stevenson. I went back to Jekyll and Hyde. I went back to Justified Sinner. And I looked around me and thought, this city hasn't changed that much. This is still a city of, of light and darkness, still a city of halves and half nots, still a city of Jekylls and Hydes. Um, and so that I thought the crime novel was a perfect way of looking at the, the overworld and the underworld and how the two are connected um, umbilically and um and so rebus became a very useful means it was meant to be one book but i thought oh hang on a minute this guy's a very useful way of looking at society from top to bottom writing political novels without tub thumping um writing travelogues without getting all kind of dewy-eyed misty-eyed And it was just, you know, and at first people, reviewers were saying unlikely to be recommended by the Edinburgh Tourist Board. And then eventually there were Rebus walking tours and people coming to Edinburgh to walk in Rebus's footsteps. Somebody literally once went into the uh, St. Leonard's police station and said to the front desk, can I see Inspector Rebus's (laughs) office, please? And they took them in and took them to an office on the ground floor that had Inspector Rebus on the door. (laughs) <laughs> They'd actually mocked it up. I thought it was a hoot. Um, and they, they did that. You know, and they'll go and look for them. Where's the mortuary? I'm looking for the mortuary. It's down there. Uh, and just great. I think that's great because that's, that's part of the real Edinburgh, isn't it? It's not just Greyfriars Bobby and bagpipes in the castle. There's a real, leave, there's a real living, breathing city here all, 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 with great stories um, uh, and, 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 and great present day stories, not just historical stories. And problems, social problems and social issues and political issues that don't really, weren't getting talked about a lot when I started writing these books. I was very proud actually, there was one book, I'm going to forget, what the one about the immigrants and asylum seekers, uh, Flesh Market Close, which was about the fact that a lot of kids' asylum seekers were getting put in a detention centre, Dungavel, uh, on the west coast, and not really getting a proper schooling or anything. And because when the book came out, an MP, an MSP who was a fan of the books, raised a question in Parliament about it. And I mean, I don't know. I don't think anything happened. But at least it was flagged up. The politicians were paying attention. And I think as a writer, you know, all you can do is flag these things up and hope somebody notices.
0: So you have an unusual post system in Edinburgh because um, I gather people mail you at the Oxford Bar. So tell us about that.
1: Well, it's a good reason. I'd say to my wife, I'm just going and picking up the post. Um... (laughs) Yeah, people send me stuff from all over the world to the Oxford Bar. And people come from all over the world to the Oxford Bar. I chose the Oxford Bar as Rebus's pub because the guy I was sharing a flat with was the barman in there when I was a postgrad student. He was an undergrad student, but he was also a part-time barman. And, and I tried finding it. He'd say, come at the Ox sometime, come at the Ox. I couldn't find it. And then he took me along one night, and it was, I went, this is ridiculous. It's really central, but it's almost impossible to find. It's like the hidden Edinburgh I'm trying to write about in the books. It's almost like a microcosm for that Edinburgh and it was full of this extraordinary cross-section of Edinburgh life. Cops, villains, politicians, journalists, lawyers. Um, if you had the price of a drink, you were as good as anybody. And I loved that. And no music, no food, just booze and chat. Uh, and very central, but very secret. And I just thought, this is, this is Rebus's pub. So after that, he, he'd start drinking in Yorks and I, I had my stagnite in there uh, in 1986. And every time I came back to Edinburgh, if I lived in London, came back to Edinburgh, first thing I would do is pilgrimage to the Oxford Bar. And um, yeah, so people send me letters, Ian Rankin, Oxford Bar, Scotland. <laughs> I get letters, I get books, I get CDs. Sometimes they leave money behind the bar for a drink. Nice. It's extraordinary. Um, uh, and all sorts, and it's, it's just great, it's great. And uh, What's
0: the best thing you've ever opened there? Best thing? That they've ever sent you there.
1: Oh, my God, the best thing I've ever been sent. Oh, jeez, I don't know. God. T-shirts, rock band stuff. Oh, somebody sent me a drawing of me. That was kind of weird, though. Was, uh, um, money, hard cash. I mean, I'm always, you know, that's the best thing I've ever been sent. It's hard cash, probably. Uh, no, all kinds. You know, photographs, drawings, songs. People, you know, a guy who wrote a song about Rebus and sent me a, burnt me a CD of it and sent me it. Um, old friends I've lost touch, we get in touch, you know. People from countries that I'm going to visit on tour, say, if you're in my country, let me know. And I say, well, where's the best pubs in Munich? Where's the best pubs in Ottawa? And they say, oh, it's that one, it's that one. Great. Local knowledge. All for it.
0: So speak to us of beer, which is another passion of yours.
1: Well, I mean, I don't know. Everybody thinks I'm a bit of a dipso. It's not not true. I mean, I I just, you know, I like socialising. And to me, the pub was how you socialised. Um, it's not so true of, of the, the younger generation. Uh, and I, I'm a bit saddened by that, that pubs these days don't seem to have the same cachet they had. I think drinking's more expensive than it was. And and the generations below mine have, have learned there's other things they want to do with their money and other ways they want to spend their time and other ways of socialising. Or they don't socialise, they do it online. They sit in their bedrooms or they sit on their phones in a cafe or whatever, they don't go to the pub. Um, so a lot of the old pubs are, are, on their, are on their knees at the moment, I think. Um, but, but booze is, I mean, you know, booze is the it's the glory of Scotland and the and the curse of Scotland, you know. It's been responsible for a lot of social problems, and a lot of ills, a lot of illnesses. Um, but at the same time, Scots can be very shy, quiet, um, bridled. But then stick a whisky inside them, and suddenly a caley. You've you seen a caley? Okay, um, a couple of whiskies or that, a couple of pints. Way everybody's up dancing. Um, it just opens. It just makes you less shy, and it opens you up to, yeah. Just it just opens you up a wee bit. I like it. You know, it seems like Scots. You know, we 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 drink to get. We drink when we're happy. And we drink when we're sad. There's a famous quote. Is that what's her name? The woman that didn't invent champagne. She got a champagne house that she started. She said, "I drink champagne when I'm happy. I drink champagne when I'm sad. At other times, I just drink champagne." Uh, you know, it's a bit like that. Scots drink when they're modelling. And they drink when they're they're cheery. You know, take a drink. But it can be a curse as well. I mean, Rebus has been cursed by it to a large extent. And because he ages in real time, he now doesn't drink very much at all because he's got big health issues and he doesn't smoke anymore. Um, So, you know, mortality has been tapping him on the shoulder for quite some time.
0: So you talked about... um feeling old yourself and slowing down and writing the books. So you're taking a year off next year. What are you going to be curious about after that?
1: Oh, you know, I don't know. I mean, they always say that writers don't, don't retire, do they? They just die with their boots on. They die at the desk, right? Um, there are some writers who've said, no, that's it, I'm done. You know, I've got nothing else to say. Recently, Lee Child has done that. Lee Child has handed the um, Jack Reacher books on to his brother, who's a thriller writer. I think it's an extraordinarily bold thing to do, to say I'm done, I've got no more stories to tell. Most writers don't, because, you know, I read the newspaper every day, there's always a story. I'm always cutting something out, circling something, something that makes me, gets the, gets the mechanism going, gets you thinking, well, what if that happened now? What if that happened in Edinburgh? What does that say about us as a society or a culture that these things are happening or that happened? Um, and I cut them out, put them in a folder, and they just, they become potential... Motors for future stories and books. Um, and I've, I've slowed down. I mean, I'm lucky if I get one good idea a year. But then one good idea a year is pretty much all I need um, to, become, to be a novelist. Uh, I do like writing short stories, but when I was young, when I was a student, I would write 20, 30, 40 short stories a year. I'm lucky enough to I write one or two. Uh, and usually because someone's told me to do it. I've been forced into doing it or asked to do it. But, you know, um, I don't know. I just think it's always been a way for me, writing down stuff has been a way of communicating with the world and making sense of the world and shaping the world um, to my needs and gratification. So, and the crime novel, I find, is the complete package Reading crime fiction, the best crime fiction I think is the complete package because it's playful but it's serious, it can take on very big moral issues of good and evil and human nature. At the same time, it's got a puzzle element to it, so it's got the same thing a crossword has or a Sudoku, you've got the pleasure of solving a puzzle or having a puzzle solved in front of your eyes, which you've failed to see. you failed to see that Arakeria clue because he's made it too cunning and you go, oh you bugger, you got me again. You know, I love it when a crime novel does that to me. They do it to me all the time. I'm terrible at working these things out. Um, But it's got all of that. It's got a sense of geography, a sense of place, a sense of a society, a culture. If I want to know about any culture in the world, I'll go to the crime fiction set there. Um, And you get great characters, mavericks, complex characters, um, goodies and baddies. You get the pleasure of the roller coaster ride, the tight story, an exciting story, but you, uh, you get the vicarious pleasure of all of that from your armchair or your bus seat or on, listening on, on audio as you're jogging or whatever. So, uh, you know, I, I was a very late, I was late coming to crime fiction. Unlike a lot of crime writers, most crime writers I know started off reading crime fiction in their teens. I didn't come to it until I was in my probably late 20s, but I was very glad to make its acquaintance.
0: Well, thank you and thank you very much for letting us be so curious about you. Thank you all very much for coming tonight. Um, this Surviving is Sir Ian Ranking FRSE uh, soon to be seen at the Book Festival and no doubt other places and obviously the Oxford Bar if you want to buy him a pint. <laughs> so <laughs> thank you very much Sir Ian. No, thank you. Thank you.